Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 12 this morning for the proclamation of the Word of our God. You'll find this in your few Bibles on page 574. Psalm 12, this is the word of our God. Let us give our attention unto it. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Thus saith the Lord. Let us pray together. O Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning, seeking, O God, instruction from Christ Asking that by your spirit, O Lord, that we may come to understand the truth as it is in Jesus. These words proclaim to us, O Lord, your will for this day. What you would have us to hear and what you would have us to do. This is a word that you have prepared for your people. May it be, O Father, that it comes to each and every heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let it be to each of us this day a word in season. Let it be to us. A means of grace. Would you do in us, O Lord, what only you can do? Ministering instruction and guidance to our hearts. We confess, O Father, that we are prone to be deaf. That we are prone not to hear and not to see. But we come to you for guidance. We come to you, O Lord, that we may see. We come to you confessing our need. And looking to you, O God, that you may supply it. And therefore we give you thanks, for we know you shall, through and for the sake of Jesus our Savior. Amen. In the years before David was king, when his life was threatened almost every hour at the hands of King Saul, And even long after David became king, when his life was threatened by his evil son Absalom, and when his closest friend lifted up his heel against him in betrayal, David often found himself in the dire straits of an evil generation. And were it not for the omnipotent power of believing prayer to God, David would not have stood a chance against his many trials David may say, it would seem, that there is no sorrow like my sorrow. 
None could say that as Christ our Savior did, of course, but David's life, if you rehearse it, in the Scriptures we see how troubled he was on every turn, constantly facing enemy after enemy, setback after setback, and trial after trial, all from the hands of those who surrounded him, many of whom were supposed to be his supporters, his own citizens, his own people. But time and time again, by lifting his eyes and raising his voices, his voice to God in prayer, David was able to ride out the waves of his sufferings by resting in the strong ark of God's preserving grace. What we like about the Psalms is that there is no place which we can be, there is no trial, there is no trouble, there is no suffering that any of us can be in that David has not already been there. We find that to be so as we read through the Psalms. But what we also find is that in every case, whatever David's plight, however low he may have been, in every case, David met God there. Or as we may say it better, in every single case, David, or God, was with David. The Lord never forsook David. In all of his trials, God preserved him, cared for him, watched out for him, guided him, and indeed delivered him. David lived in an evil generation, but he found much help, all the help he needed in his God, by looking to him constantly in prayer. That's just what David does here in this psalm. He turns to God in prayer. He finds comfort in God's promise of preservation. And then he consoles himself in the Lord's care for him. So these three parts then make up this psalm for us this morning. David's prayer, the comfort he receives from God, and the consolation that that brings to his own heart. So let's trace these together as we work through this psalm. Look at verses 1 to 4. David's prayer has three parts. It begins with a cry of one word. Save. Or it may equally be translated, help. If such a cry reveals anything, it reveals the urgency of David's need. The urgency of his plight. The urgency of his cry to God. He cries out, help, O Lord. Save, O God. Because more than not, the greater the burden, the heavier the heart. And the fewer the words. And the more the tears. Have you, have you ever found yourself in a place where you wanted to cry out to God but didn't know what to say? When all you could do on your knees is cry? When all you could do is say, Lord, help me. I don't know what I need. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what the solution is. Lord, help. Just help. I think we've all been there. We've probably all been there many times. This is where David was. And of course, his prayer includes more words than this one cry in verse 1 because his actual request comes in verses 3 and 4. But this is where the prayer begins. This is the longing which weighs on the heart and forces David's mouth open. This is the cry that was squeezed out of the winepress of his sufferings. Help, O Lord! He finds himself beset by a great trial. 
He knows his refuge is gone. He knows his only refuge is gone. But he knows God is his refuge. And therefore he turns with boldness, pouring out his heart with this cry to the Lord his God. And what an effective cry it is. All at once it reveals need. It reveals dependence. It reveals reliance. It reveals faith. And therefore it cannot but be the effectual prayer of a child of God. As James 5 says, it cannot but accomplish much. Because he's turning to the one who holds the answer. He's turning to the one who holds the solution. He's turning to the one who has promised to care for him. He's relying, utterly dependent, upon the one in whose hands rest all things. If the wheel needs to be turned, he knows only God can turn it. How often have we turned to other places instead of to the Lord? David immediately goes to God. And his cry, help, O Lord. It's the essence of the cry and the essence of the prayer that Christ urged upon us. That prayer when he told us to pray, ask, and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. This cry is really, it's the humble prayer of a childlike faith, which has no use for eloquent speech. It is not a time for eloquent speech. He opens his mouth and he cries from his heart a cry of help. There's no embarrassment at this point by surroundings. Who, who may hear from the other room? Who may hear even in the same room? The need is great. The cry is from the heart. There's no place for eloquence. No place for embarrassment. It refuses to be, to, to be delayed a minute longer. But believingly, trustingly, dependently, David cries like a child to his father. Help! O oh Lord, mark this well, beloved. However bold or seemingly impossible your request may be that fills in the blank between help, O oh Lord, and in Jesus' name, Amen, you can rest assured that it will be answered favorably. For the Lord ever delights in that prayer that, as it were, begins in that way. Help, O oh Lord. It confesses that dependence that the Lord delights to supply. Do you know anything about those kind of prayers, beloved? Are your prayers peppered with these cries for help to the Lord? Do you pray as one who knows full well your utter dependence upon God? Sometimes we come to God with very small matters. It's not that God won't answer small prayers. Of course He does. But sometimes our attitude is such that, Lord, I got this one. Just need a little push. And we come to God almost as a last resort. Or we come to God just for that little extra that we can't supply ourselves. The Lord delights when we come to Him as a child. Having nothing and needing everything. Those are the prayers that are answered. Of all the people that came to Christ, it was only those who knew their need that went away blessed. Did you ever notice that? 
The Pharisees despised and had no use for Christ. It isn't because they really didn't need Him. Of course they needed Him. But they had no use for Christ because they believed that they already had everything they needed in themselves. Because no matter who they were, how great their need, whether it was healing from leprosy, deliverance from demons, or even resurrection from the dead, none ever left Christ empty-handed who came to Him in faith and said, Help, O Lord. Christ never turned any away who came to Him mindful of their need. May God make us needy souls. May God make us those who pray needy prayers that we might know the all-sufficiency of our precious Savior who says to us, regardless of our need, come to me and I will give you rest. Ask whatever you will in my name and I will give it unto you. The only way we're going to know the answer to those prayers The only way we're going to know the fullness and the fulfillment of that promise is by coming cognizant of our great need. Our prayers need to arise from a heart that says, Help, O Lord. So this cry of David reveals the urgency. Well, if this cry reveals the urgency, then his complaint reveals the cause of his cry to the Lord. And look at your verses there. David complains of two things. He complains, first of all, of the scarcity of other Christians. And then he complains of the prevalence of wicked men. Now, these are two different things, of course. But David puts them together because like a scale, when one goes up, the other must go down. And in David's day, the godly were so scarce that he complained to God that they were all gone. He complained to God that they had vanished like the morning mist and that none was left around him in his society but the lying, self-conceited wicked. Now it's important we don't miss something here. David is not complaining of the wicked who surround him in the world. That's no surprise. David's complaining of the wicked who surround him in the community of God's people. In other words, David's cry arises from the fact that the church of God, of which he was a part, if you will, was plagued. Plagued by lovers of deceit, hypocrisy, and pride. That all around him uttered lies. All around him were nothing more than flatterers. David complained. Because the society in which he found himself was beset by wickedness. Rather than having the blessing of those whose speech constantly reverts to the things of God, rather than having the blessing of those whose fellowship encourages and uplifts, and whose promises and whose character were trustworthy, David was surrounded by those whose speech dripped with deceit and flattery, and whose lives were rebelliously lived without any reference to God at all. And this was painful to David. It grieved his heart so deeply that it forced out this cry of help, O Lord. David looked around in his day, in the church of his day, if you will. David looked around and he hardly found a man with whom he could have fellowship. He hardly found a man with whom he could worship and pray and sing to the Lord. 
He felt as though he stood alone as a God-fearer in a broad landscape of wicked men who polluted the sanctuary of God itself. And it deeply grieved him. And the minute he opened his mouth, the first thing from his heart was, Help! O Lord! Deliver me from this evil generation. Preserve me from this evil generation in which I find myself. Because he was so beset, there were enemies on every side. David, of course, was a type of our Savior. A type of Christ. And our Savior, likewise, was beset on every side by enemies. The religious leaders, who should have been glad for his coming, opposed him and sought to put him to death. The people, who should have delighted in his ministry, only came for more bread to fill their bellies. Beset on every side he was. This grieved David. Grieved him greatly. And this reminds us of something very important. It reminds us of something I trust we already know. It reminds us that amid the trials of a sinful world, few things are more sweet to us than the fellowship and the communion of the godly. Christian fellowship has long been referred to by some as a means of grace. Because of the great provocation that it is to growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. When we take advantage of Christian fellowship, it provides us with strength for our duties. It provides us with joy in our sufferings, with delight in our sorrows, with patience in our trials, and with zeal in our race. Hebrews chapter 12, you remember, referred to the saints of the Old Testament as a great cloud of witnesses, not standing aloof with no interest in our race, but rather gathered around, cheering us on in our race as we run the race that they have run before us, cheering us on and encouraging us to run well the race set before us. And as the author says, keeping our eyes upon Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. In Pilgrim's Progress, one of the sweetest and the most endearing relationships is the one of friendship and fellowship and brotherhood with which Bunyan draws between Christian and hopeful. You may remember their many conversations. You may remember in Doubting Castle when Christian despaired so much that he, was a, that he even contemplated suicide. That it was hopeful who came alongside and cheered him up and reminded him that there was yet hope for the godly even in such a place as they found themselves. You remind them you may remember upon enchanted ground when they were surrounded by temptations that they cheered themselves and kept themselves watchful and alert by sharing their testimony with one another, talking about the things of God. They were warned of that place. The temptation would be faced. And they cheered one another. Christian and hopeful in their relationships stand in Pilgrim's Progress as an enduring picture of the fellowship which all Christians enjoy in the Church of Christ. There's few things better in this world than Christian fellowship. Because what we begin here never ends. What we enjoy here is but a foretaste of what we shall enjoy forever. The communion and the fellowship of the Christian brotherhood forever in Christ. What a blessing our fellowship is as saints. But David had no such friend when he wrote this psalm. Because as he said, the godly were gone. 
But with the absence of the godly was the presence of the ungodly. And the stark absence of God-fearers was most manifested in the absence of the fear of God in the speech and dealings of men. In verse 2, David says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Everyone flatters one another in their speech. Everyone speaks with a double heart, not meaning what he says and not saying what he means. None is honest. None is truthful. None is sincere. Hypocrisy, duplicity, and deceit rule the day in every man's speech. This is what David complained of. No one had an honest answer. Everyone lied and deceived. Everyone manipulated, used his mouth and his tongue to get what he wanted for himself, caring nothing for his hearers. According to verse 4, the reason for this was because every man was convinced that he was master over his own tongue. He was convinced that he was accountable to no one for his speech. As it says in verse 4, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. What a boast. And yet that could be as well said today. It could be as well said, in fact, in any day, in every day. What do men rely upon more than any other to get what they want? Saying it loud enough. Saying it long enough. Saying it to the right people at the right time in the right way, you get whatever you want. How often do we butter our speech? For manipulation. How often do we discolor our speech? Sharing a half-truth. Not telling the whole truth. Lest we be found out. Lest our request be denied. We all understand this. By nature. This is our boast. Our lips are with us. Nobody can tell me what to say. Nobody can tell me when I can say it. Nobody can govern my speech but me. Isn't that what we hear all the time? We face this sometimes even with our children. But we face it with adults as well. We face it with mankind. God says you can't say that. And man says yes I can. Who's going to tell me not to? Who is master over us? My lip is with me. No one can govern me. This was at the root of it all. This pride, this arrogance, this living without reference to God, this atheism, this practical atheism. Those in David's day, those in our day, were convinced that none was master over his tongue but himself. But how wrong they were, and how wrong every man is who speaks so. According to what our Lord says in Matthew twelve thirty six, our words are not our own. Instead, our words belong to God, who created us and our tongues, and who calls us to speak the truth in love at all times, in all places, to all peoples. And on the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus says, we will give an account for every single word we've spoken. We can say what we will. But God writes it down in a book. No word goes unheard. Every word 
if you will, is recorded. What does this teach us? It teaches us a very fundamental truth. That no man has a right to use his tongue any way he wants. But every man is a steward. Every man is entrusted. Above all creation, every man is entrusted with an instrument of speech to praise and proclaim the things of God. Nothing else in all creation can speak. Nothing else in all creation can sing. Nothing else in all creation can preach the things of God but man. Because man alone was made in God's image and given an instrument for vocality to speak. Why? That we may sing God's praises. That we may proclaim God's character. That we may testify to truth. Man is the voice of mute creation. All creation gathers around the feet of man. Indeed, what is creation but under our feet? All creation is at the foot of man, beckoning man to open his mouth and proclaim its praise to its creator. And man is obligated in his very creation to be the voice of praise to God for all that He has made. We are to sing the song of the stars, if you will. The song of all that God has made. And God will hold us accountable for our stewardship, will He not? That's Jesus' point. And so in this psalm, man may pretend and man may boast of independence from God. Man may say, our lips are with us, who is master over us. But nothing a man can do or say will ever accomplish his independence from God. Nothing will ever bring it about. Because man remains a creature still. And he remains an accountable creature at that. If God were to remove his hand out from underneath any one of us, we would cease to be instantly. The Lord upholds us all. It would do us good to remember that. And so it grieved David to see the godly and all of their virtues vanished from the house of God and it grieved him to see the wicked arise with their wicked speech to take their place. I wonder if we feel the same way today. Our day is much like David's day, isn't it? A day when God-fearers are very few. We can pick up any number of biographies from the history of the church and we can read of spiritual giants in a former age. Men like D.B. Warfield, John Newton, Christopher Love, men like Machen and Bunyan and Rutherford. We can read great biographies of great men of the past, giants of spirituality, giants of holiness, whose lives left an immeasurable impact upon the church. We're still reading about them. We still love their diaries and their letters and their biographies. But I wonder how many will be reading our biographies in 100, 200, 300 years. I wonder how many legacies of exemplary godliness will be found to have been left upon the landscape of the 21st century church by you and me. I don't think there will be that many. And it ought to grieve us. It ought to grieve us like it grieved David. It ought to bring forth a cry for help and a complaint to God that despite the church's size in America, in this nation the church is huge. There are churches on every corner in some places. The church is huge. And yet despite the size of the church, the lives of most and the speech of most evidence 
that those who have a true fear of God in their hearts are few. May we all be in that number. But David doesn't stop there, does he? His cry and his complaint give rise to a petition in verse 3. And notice what he prays. He prays for the Lord to intervene and to cut off the flattering and the proud tongue. You see, what David longs for is the sweet fellowship of the saints, among whom honesty and truth and sincerity are cultivated and produced. And what he's faced with is a host of double-talking deceivers. What he longs for is the fellowship of those who love God and who live before the face of God. And instead, he's surrounded by those who defy the face of God and who exchange honesty for manipulation. And so David prays that God would cut them off. That God would excise the wicked boasters from the congregation of the righteous. That God would purge them out of His sanctuary so that they might no longer pollute the sweet fellowship of the godly. This seems like a very strong prayer. And indeed, it is a strong prayer. It's a strong request. It's not an unusual one. It's made many times in the Scriptures. But it's not too strong a prayer when we understand and remember that nothing so deforms the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And nothing so hampers its witness to a dying world. And nothing so dishonors the life-changing gospel which we preach as disingenuous, hypocritical members whose lives and speech run contrary to their profession of faith in Jesus It is an evil generation, beloved, in which David found himself, and maybe one in which we find ourselves, one in which certainly many Christians have found themselves throughout the history of the church. It is an evil generation when even in the house of God, the godly are scarce. When in the house of God, they speak with double tongue and hypocrisy. When true spiritual Christian fellowship is replaced with duplicitous flattering. When we don't mean what we say. And we don't say what we mean. When there's not intimate, honest, edifying, building up fellowship and conversation, it is an evil generation, isn't it? One commentator may have been right when he said of this psalm that it contains the common complaint of the church of all times. Because even in our own day, who would disagree that true, honest, open Christian fellowship is hard to find? May it be our prayer that the Lord would be pleased to mark and brand our church by that sweet Christian fellowship which is a taste of heaven on earth. But if verses 1 to 4 teach us that we have a God to whom we can turn in an evil day, then verses 5 to 6 teach us that we have a God who comforts us with His exceedingly great and precious promises. In the beginning, David cries out, Save, O Lord! And by verse 5, God answers, I will now arise. Notice God says, I will now arise. Now, after David's prayer. Now, after David's complaint. Because to come earlier would have prevented David's prayer. To come later would have been to ignore David's prayer. God says He will arise now because He delights to answer prayer. And because He will be known as His people's deliverer. And so God will come to us in our troubles. 
that we may find in Him our deliverance. And notice what the comfort is which God pours into David's heart. It's a promise. It's a promise that He will place him in the safety for which he longs. God assures David, number one, that he's fully aware of the suffering he's facing. That God is fully aware of where David is. And number two, that he promises that he will answer his prayer by preserving him from the snares of the ungodly which surround him. God will keep David's feet on solid ground, in other words. God will keep David walking in the narrow path, the place of safety. And there can, can there be any greater comfort than this? Can there be any greater comfort than knowing that the God of heaven and earth, our God, sees our troubles? That He puts our tears in a bottle. That He hears our prayers. And that He promises complete deliverance. We look in vain if we look for a greater foundation upon which to build our hopes and a greater reason to sing God's praises than what we have in His exceedingly precious promises. Because the promises of God are nothing like the promises of men. We've already learned from verses 2 to 4 that men's promises are manipulations. We've already learned that man's speeches are deceptions. That man's comforts are flatteries. David has just made the point that man's speech cannot be trusted. How wonderful it is that God's speech is not like that. Look at verse 6. What does God, what does David say about God's speech? The promise he just, just made in verse 5. What does David say about his speech? The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Purified completely. God speaks to His people with sincerity. God speaks to His people with truthfulness, with honesty, with integrity, with, plain, with plainness. When God speaks, we can take it to the bank. When God speaks, we can build everything upon it. Whatever your trouble, but find a promise of God in the Scriptures. Find a promise which speaks to it, and you can build your whole life upon the promises of God with confidence. More than that, you can build the hope of your eternal soul upon the Word of God. Because God's words are pure, they are true, they are dependable, they have been confirmed by the blood of Him who purchased your liberty unto them for His sake. And how can, not, how can God not speak truthfully? How can He not speak honestly to us? How can His words not be pure and true? The Son of God is truth itself. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And the Father is light, in whom there is no darkness at all. So what we need in an evil generation is not less trials or lighter afflictions. What we need is stronger faith in the word of our almighty and righteous God. What we need is a sure knowledge of and a life lived upon the promises of God. What does this do for us? Well, look what it did for David. Come to verses 7 and 8. David has a promise in hand from verse 5. It's no surprise then to see him console himself in the closing verses with the assurance of God's deliverance. Because when God is the keeper, when God is the preserver, no enemy has a chance at all. The chaff can do nothing to withstand the whirlwind. The reed can do nothing to resist the fire. And infinitely less, infinitely less of a chance do the wicked have when God arises to protect 
and deliver his people. And so look what David does in verse 7. God makes a promise in verse 5. David affirms that the words of God are trustworthy. Immediately in verse 7, he assures himself that in the Lord's own time and manner, God will keep his promise. God will preserve him from the evil generation in which he lives. Remember how the Lord preserved Israel in Egypt? Remember how the Lord preserved Israel again in the wilderness for 40 years? Remember how the Lord preserved his people in captivity in Babylon? God never deserts his people. God's always with his people. Whether we find ourselves under the weight of oppressors, whether we find ourselves at the hands of persecutors, even on the bed of sickness, even in the place and on the threshold of death. Our God is with us. As we read from Psalm 91, He protects us under the shadow of His wings until the time of our complete deliverance comes. And if David found such great comfort in the promise of God that he could console his heart in the very midst of his struggles, then can you not do the same? Beloved, what are the promises of God to you? When you open the pages of the Bible and you begin to read, and you read a promise of God, what is it, what is it to you? Is it mere words upon a page? Do you count it no more than you count the words of men? Or do you build your hopes upon them? Do you stand upon God's promises as upon a solid rock? Does a promise in your hand put joy in your heart and praise in your mouth? The Lord gave you His promises so that you might be forever assured that His heart is towards you. That He sees you. That He knows where you are and what you face. That He is able and willing and will indeed deliver you. And until that time, He will be with you in your trials. I urge you to cling to the promises in faith. To plead them in prayer. To preach them again and again to your troubled hearts. Because nothing comforts and nothing consoles like God's promises. Look at verse 8, finally. The psalm ends very unexpectedly, doesn't it? We expect the psalm to end with the testimony, maybe, of God's deliverance of David, of David experiencing the fulfillment of this promise, because no doubt he did. But instead, it ends with a sobering assessment of the reality of the world in which the church dwells. David simply says, on every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Why does it end like this? I would suggest there are two reasons. First of all, because God would have us know that until Jesus returns in judgment, this world will be marked by its wickedness. Revelation 22 verse 11 teaches something similar when in the light of the imminent return of Christ, the Lord Jesus there says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. What it means is that we are not to expect the Christianization of the world before our Lord comes. The world will always be the black backdrop against which the church's beauty in Christ is seen. The world will always be the thing from which the church is redeemed. 
and the thing in the midst of which the church is preserved by God. Think of Noah in the ark and the storm that surrounded him on all sides. That's the church. The church will always be the place where God dwells, the place where God is worshipped, the place where the people of God are. And it will always be a place of refuge. But it will always be amidst the storms of the wickedness of this world, amidst trials and suffering. Because it's in that context that God has seen fit to bring Himself the most glory by preserving His people in the troubles that surround them. So rather than things getting better, Revelation chapter 20 teaches that things will get much worse before Christ returns. The church will get smaller. The persecution will increase. Because as Jesus said, this is the hour and the power of darkness. The devil knows, we read, that his time is short. But we need not worry, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because however long the darkness lasts, however long the storm However long it rains, it can't be but short, because the Son of Righteousness is already rising with healing in His wings for His church's full deliverance. And until He comes, we have this promise in this very song that He'll preserve us from this evil generation, and He will therefore preserve us from the judgment which He will soon bring upon it. But there's a second reason this psalm ends, I think, in this way. And that is because God would have us prize and value His church on earth. In a wicked world, we are to seek our refuge in God alone. But as we do, what does God do with those who seek refuge in Him? Well, the book of Acts tells us clearly again and again and again. God gathers to Himself a people. And He gathers us one by one and brings us into His church where we enjoy the communion of saints, the fellowship of the Spirit, the preaching of the, word of, the, of the Word of God, the hope of eternal life. These things are enjoyed in the church. These are the means by which God nourishes and matures His people, Ephesians 4 tells us. And so when God saves the people, He brings them into the church. When Christ saves the soul, He makes them a member of His body. So that while it is indeed true that the church cannot save you, since the church is where God's gospel is preached, since the church is the ark into which God gathers His people and keeps them safe in a vile world, none can hope to be saved who absents himself from the church of Christ on earth. So that as our confession says, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the church of Christ. Because where else will you hear the gospel? Where else will you enjoy the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Where else will you enjoy the means of grace as we have them before us this morning? And so the psalm ends by bluntly describing the rise of evil in the world all around us. So that we may value and prize the church. So that we may not neglect the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. And all the more as we see the day approaching. I close by asking you, dear friends, do you prize the church of Jesus Christ on earth? It is a church beset by weakness. It is a church plagued in some ways. 
There is no pure church of Christ on earth as we have confessed. But it is His church. He has built it. He reigns over it. And He fills it with His Spirit. And He puts His Word within it for your growth in grace until He comes again. Do you prize then the church of Jesus Christ? Do you long for the weekly Lord's Day when the refreshing showers of God's grace will fall upon you again? Do you long for that Christian fellowship which not only tastes of heaven, but encourages us to grow in grace? That Christian fellowship which hinders backsliding. That Christian fellowship which is a chief preservative against apostasy. We will always live in an evil world. And the world will always pose a danger to our Christian walk. But if you stay close to the church of Jesus Christ, if you live lives centered upon what God is doing in and by His church, and ever cling to Jesus Christ, the Savior and head of the church, then you'll be preserved from this evil generation in which we live. And you'll be kept safe under His watchful eye and in the hands of His tending care. And what is the sacrament that we share today? But the testimony of our desire for the communion of the saints and our pledge and commitment to the same. Paul said we break one bread. We drink one cup. And by this sacrament we pledge our communion and fellowship. We pledge our earnest and interest in the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. Beloved, it is my prayer that we will all find salvation in Christ first and foremost, fellowship in His church, and refuge in His promises until He comes again to take us home. May we be men and women, boys and girls, may we be churchmen, lovers of Christ's church. We have all, I think, known the day that David knew when he cried, Help, O Lord, for the godly are gone. But may we be those who secure in our day, by our own lives, and by the raising up of our children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, may we bring about, by God's grace, a day again in which legacies of godliness are left in this world where legacies of godliness fill the church. And may they read our biographies, not because we were great, but because God is great, and because God dwells in His people, and God has established a church in this world until He comes again. May you give thanks that you are a part of it. And if you are not yet a part of it, may God bring you into it by His grace. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your keeping grace, for your preserving grace. We thank you, O Lord, this morning for your church. And we thank you, O God, for this church. We confess what a blessing it is to be a part of it, O God. We testify unto you that we delight in your house. Better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We would rather be a doorkeeper in your house than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Father, thank you for your church. And thank you, Lord, that even on this morning, in this building, we can all gather from various places in our nation, from various walks of life, 
And we can all gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the body of our Savior. Bless our fellowship. Pour out your Spirit upon us and bind our hearts together. May this be the day in which godly fellowship is enjoyed by us all. Bless us now, O God, as we turn to the sacrament together, that pledge of our communion and that confession of our belief in the consummation of this communion when Christ comes to take us home and we shall publicly and visibly be that one body, that one church. We ask it in His name. Amen.